Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you promised us a counselor, a comforter, a healer, a light in the darkness. You so graciously provide. And we ask today that you provide. You provide your Holy Spirit to us, Lord, to guide us this morning, to watch over every word spoken and every word heard between us, among us. Lord, let us be led by you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It is great to be here. My name is uh, Alec Zaccaroli. I'm a pastoral intern here at Burke Community Church. Good morning to everybody online. Uh, my daughter Sophie, I think, is online. Can we say hi to Sophie? Hi. Thank you. She appreciate that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's great to have you here. Um, I was on I-395 many years back in my 1978 Fiat convertible, which was actually running at the time, which is a minor miracle in itself. And I had the top down, and it was this absolutely beautiful day. Okay, and I had the, the radio playing on my cassette player, and I was talking to my wife on my blue Nokia cell, uh, cell phone. Remember those? Because that gives you a little idea of the era, I think. We had Mastodon for breakfast that morning. <laughs> you know, and, um, and, and we were talking, because I was sitting in traffic, I was right on 395, right next to the Pentagon parking lot. I'm sure most of you probably know exactly what, you know, where that is. And we'd heard these reports of planes hitting buildings in New York. And we were trying to figure it out. When all of a sudden, there was this massive explosion right to the left of me. And I turned around, and I looked, and it was this column, this pillar of fire, straight up. Okay, it was like the, the trunk of a tree, a big fiery trunk, and like the canopy was this big black smoke. And I looked up above the smoke, and there was this, this debris just floating in the air um, above all this chaos. And, and, and I, turned to my, I turned, uh, turned to my wife. I said to my wife on the phone, they, they've just bombed the Pentagon, okay? I thought it was a bomb because that plane came in so fast and so low, I, I didn't see it. And she said, what? And then, and then the phone went dead. My wife was eight months pregnant at home. I kind of wound my way around and, and got off uh, Boundary Channel Drive and, and stopped at, a, at a, one of the parks there. And, and there was a lagoon. And I was looking out across the way at, at the Pentagon um, and looking at this whole scene unfolding. It was fire and smoke and sirens. It was, very, it was this, this very definition of chaos and, and demonic chaos at that. There's chaos in the flames, in the explosions, the destructive force of violence. We all, we all know that day. And even before we witnessed the chaos in New York and in Washington and in that field in Pennsylvania, there was this chaos in these people who carried out this act deep within them, deep in their souls. 9-11 is a stark reminder that chaos is very much a part of the human experience it's a cue that we will all, at some point or other, face daunting circumstances that are beyond our control. Some of it's external to us, okay? A terror attack, a hurricane, a shooting, a car accident. Some of it haunts us deep within, the pain of abuse, divorce, disease, mental illness, addiction. Some of you have experienced this chaos. 
Some of you are going through it today, I bet. For some of you, it might be right on the horizon. And the question we ask ourselves, we, we're tempted to ask here is, so where do we turn in the chaos? Okay, we're in church, right? So you know the answer. The answer is always Jesus. <laughs> and that's great. Of course, we turn to Jesus. But, but here's the bigger question. Why? Why do we turn to Jesus? And what does it look like? What does the results look like when we do that? So we're going to look at chaos today. And Jesus. And us. And how all this fits together. We're going to look at two narrative accounts in the book of Mark, okay, that reveal who Jesus is in the midst of chaos and how we're supposed to respond to who he is. It's something like 27 verses. I know you're used to that, right? <laughs> okay, but, but it's a lot. But you need to look at these two narrative accounts together because they, they really do speak together about the revealing, revealing the astounding picture of who our Savior is in the midst of chaos. Okay, the first one is, is when Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee and comes up against a storm with his disciples. The second is when he gets to the other side and faces a demon-possessed man. Okay, and, and we're looking at Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, if you want to turn there. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and read the first account for you. It's kind of short, and you can read it with me. Uh, and so it's Mark 4, 35 through 41. Now, on that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and waves were breaking over the boat, so much so that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep in a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea. Hush, be still. And the wind died down. And it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? First thing I want you to notice here is the setting Okay, Jesus just finished talking to a large crowd, preaching to a large crowd, sharing with them the truth. Um, and, and if you go back to verse 1, you note that Jesus got, got into a boat in the sea. Okay, that we should ask ourselves these questions. Why the sea? What was this really? It, it wasn't a sea, right? It's, it's, it's actually a, a large freshwater lake. In fact, all of the, most of the other writers contemporary to the Gospels refer to the Sea of Galilee as a lake as Lake Tiberias or Lake Genesaret. So why in Mark and the other Gospels is it called the Sea of Galilee? Well, you need to think about the audience that this, these Gospels are written to. Mark is written to a, a general audience, likely composed of both Gentiles and Jews, and to both, the sea would have carried connotations of supernatural force, forces. For instance, the Canaanite god of the sea, Yem, he was a powerful opponent of Baal to the Gentiles. Not coincidentally, the Hebrew word for sea, by the way, is yam. So to the Hebraic mind, the sea is associated with chaos and that which stands in opposition to Yahweh. It's, almost, it's also as a chaos that Yahweh time and again subdues, as you know. 
Job 26.12, for instance, says that Yahweh quieted the sea, the Yam. And by his understanding, he shattered Rahab. And that word, Rahab, it can be translated as rage or violence, but in this instance, it's talking about a, a pagan mythical dragon of the sea. So you, you have this picture there. That sea is, is, is this chaos, a line fighting against God. Probably the most powerful image of the sea, though, goes back to the very beginning of the creation narrative, right? And Genesis 1-2 says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the waters. <coughs> the word for deep there, Tiham, it refers to this primal ocean, primeval ocean, okay, which was in a state of chaos. Like the formless and void earth, it was all totally lacking in order. And God speaks light into the chaos, and suddenly all creation is brought into his divine, beautiful order. Our God is a God of order, a God who, by the very utterance of his breath, creates divine harmony from pandemonium. You see this in the, in the account. For Jesus to set himself upon the sea there, then, it carries a far richer meaning than we might otherwise perceive. He stands, he literally stands over chaos. Likewise, his decision to cross the sea has a far deeper significance in the story of God than merely rowing a boat across a lake. Now, next we read that the great storm comes up, okay? A fierce gale of wind we see in the NASB. Uh, okay, now this, this, this particular lake, as, as Mike, uh, Michael alluded to last week, is known for its faster rising storm. But this is not just any storm. This is not just any storm. If you look back at chapter 1 of Mark, you find that the word Jesus uses to silence the storm, Themo, is actually the same imperative that he uses to silence a demon, an outraged demon. This suggests here that the storm may have had some demonic origin, which would have made sense, right? I mean, think about the sources of storms in the Bible. If you go back to Jonah, okay, and by the way, the parallelism and this contrast between this account and Jonah is amazing. I, it's a whole other sermon, but you should check it out. All right, but back to what I'm my point. If you go back and look at Jonah, you find a man setting out, what? In disobedience to God. So what's the source of the storm? Who's the source of the storm? It's God. In this account, you see Jesus and the disciples setting out in the obedience to God to bring his light to the Gentile territories. It only makes sense that Satan would throw all he could at this situation to try and stop it. Something to consider, by the way, if you're facing storms in your life, you may want to check your level of obedience to God. That, that's extra, no charge. But, but back to the point. What we see here is this incredibly powerful demonic storm arising out of chaos and pitting itself against Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus, without fear or hesitation, using merely the words of his mouth, speaks it into total submission. It's amazing. Again, go back to Genesis 1 with me. There's chaos in the deep, and God speaks light into that chaos, and immediately there's order. Here, there's chaos in the deep. Jesus speaks power into that chaos, and immediately there's order. This is not only a demonstration of the power of Jesus. This is a demonstration of his absolute divinity. Nearly as astounding as Jesus, though, uh, as Jesus' demonstration of his power, is the disciples' response. To begin with, I want you to notice verse 437, when the storm arises, they immediately, their immediate reaction is to wake Jesus with this question. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? First note, they call him teacher. We're going to come back to that a little later. 
Okay. And second, note that they believe they're going to die. Even after all he had done, all the miracles he had done to that point, all that he had revealed to them, they believe they're going to die. Third, they misread Jesus' relaxed state as one of indifference to danger rather than confidence in the power of God. They're completely ignorant as to who Jesus is in this moment of crisis and chaos. Jesus himself actually testifies to this after the storm. He says, do you still have no faith? Finally, after having witnessed probably the, the greatest evidence of the divinity of Jesus here, who he is, his, literally we just talked about speaking chaos, I mean speaking order into chaos, they still don't know who he is. In their own words, in verse 41, they say, who is this then, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They didn't know Jesus before the storm. They didn't trust him in the middle of the storm. And sadly, they still didn't even know him after he had delivered them from it. This raises a question. When the storm hits your life, will you know who Jesus is? Will you try to shake him awake in panic, fearing that you're going to drown under all the circumstances? Or will you call on him and trust that his power is enough? See, we see from this that Jesus is more powerful than the chaos Satan introduces to us or against us in, in all of natural creation, all around us, what's outside of us. But what about the chaos that Satan instills within us? And this is the second part of our journey. So we're going to move on to chapter 5, verse 1. And we're going to talk here about Jesus' encounter with a demon-possessed man. Okay, it's, this is a long account, so I'm not going to read it for you. Uh, just, if you could just follow along with me uh, in your Bibles. So Jesus and the disciples arrive at the other side of the Sea of Galilee, right? Verse 5-1. And Jesus gets out of the boat, and immediately he's, he's greeted by what? By what? The Gerasene welcome wagon, right? Right? No. Welcome to Gerasene. Lovely in the springtime. We baked you some fig muffins. They're gluten-free. No. Right off the bat, the first thing Jesus faces is more satanic opposition. A man possessed by a host of demons. And I want you to take note of the severity of this man's possession. How potent these demons are in the language that's in verses five through two, uh, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. By the way, as an aside here, this is a really beautiful use of chiastic structure. Okay, what does that mean? It means that there's parallelism in structure. And, and, and this is not just fancy hermeneutic stuff. This is, this is important to grasp. You, you note that parallelism opens with Jesus' encounter of the, of the demon. It illustrates the magnitude of the demonic power in the middle, and it closes with that power's submission to Jesus. It's a perfect little package. It's, I love it. Anyway. <laughs> but, but I want you to note the de details here. First of all, about this demon-possessed man. No one was able to bind the man. Okay, he broke free from all forms of shackles and chains, right? No one was strong enough to subdue him. And all day he screamed and gashed himself with stones. We also know that because Jesus later said, asks him, um, what is your name? And, and, and they respond, what? Legion, for we are many. What does that tell us about this, this demon-possessed man? The reference here is to a Roman legion, which would have consisted of somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 men. Well, that may be literal, may be figurative, but we know this much. We know that these demons go out and they inhabit 2,000 pigs. This is not your everyday demon possession, if there is such a thing. 
This is severe, supernatural, incredibly evil power at work against Jesus. Now note the response of the, of the, of the demons to the presence of Jesus. The demons bow down before him in verse six, five, six. And they say, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. They call him son of the most high God. The demons know exactly who they're dealing with. In fact, throughout the gospel of Mark, the demons repeatedly recognize Jesus' divinity. I want you to contrast this with the disciples. Remember, what did they call him? Teacher. The demons know him, but his own followers don't. The text next tells, the text next tells us that Jesus ordered the demons out of the man, uh, and so one would think at this point, we're up for this mighty cosmic showdown, right? This legion of demons against this one man. But no such battle ensues. The demons, previously unmatched in their strength, they cower and plead for mercy before Jesus. He literally doesn't have to say a thing. Apparently his nonverbals were pretty powerful. Okay, the scene kind of reminds me of a time in my youth um, when my friends and I, uh, as a preteen, we had a penchant sometimes for causing trouble. And we had, we had a sleepover, about four or five of us, maybe six, at my house. And someone got the bright idea let's, at five o'clock in the morning, because we were up and we were bored, and that's always a bad thing when you're a teenager. Um, someone got the bright idea to say, let's go play Ding Dong Ditch. You all know what Ding Dong Ditch is? Yeah, I mean, all the, all the like, over 40 people get it. I, I don't know. I don't know what the younger generations do. But anyway, it's when you go up and you, you go to a house and you ring the doorbell a whole bunch of times and then you go and hide behind a bush. I, to this day, I'm not really sure what's fun about that, but that's <laughs> what we did. So we go out to do this, and there's always the one guy in the crowd, the one, the one boy, right, who either trips and falls or, like, you know, cowers or just, plane sells out, right? And gets caught. Today it was my friend, my best friend, Jorgen, the Swede. He could ski, but apparently he couldn't run. <laughs> he got caught by an angry neighbor. And uh, we did the Christian thing. We did. We just left him there and went home. <laughs> but we're coming up the driveway. And we're met halfway by him. He's standing in his robe, characteristically sockless in his worn-out tennis shoes. He's 5'10", but he stands 14 feet tall, okay? He's my dad. And he's standing there with the newspaper in his hand, just slapping it. <laughs> we outnumbered him by at least five people and probably about 17 pounds total. <laughs> But we totally cowered and started babbling for mercy without, saying, without him saying a word. You know, the worst part, there wasn't even a herd of pigs for us to go into. But, but you see the point? It's, it, it, this is how it was for these demons. They, they, they don't even wait for Jesus' command. They just beg for mercy. They know his power is greater than theirs. And note that they asked to be sent into a herd of pigs. What does that tell you about Satan? What, you know, yeah, these, these, this guy was okay to inhabit, but yeah, a pig will do too. We are pigs to Satan. That's, that's the way he sees us. Now, now Jesus, I want you to know, he, he doesn't drive them into the herd. 
Okay, so if you're struggling with the morality of what seems like this large suede massacre, you know, massacre of pigs, no, Jesus just granted permission, okay? The demons entered the pigs on their own accord. The pigs enter the sea and they all drown. Catch that. I love this. Chaos is destroyed by chaos. God turns it on itself. God remains in control. Jesus shows up. The the, the demon-possessed man finds him. The demon pleads with him. He simply says, go, and the full power of hell is gone from that region. This, this is the power of Jesus. So what happens next? The herdsmen who see the power of God, they, they run into the city in a panic, right? And the people come out and they hear this account of the pig and they see the very man who was so possessed now is, verse 15, uh, 515 tells us, he's clothed and in his right man. They're like, what's going on? And what happens? They become frightened and they implore Jesus to leave. They implore him to leave. That should sound a little familiar. Verse 441 says the disciples became very much afraid too. The disciples wondered who Jesus was. The townspeople simply asked him to leave. Neither were ready to accept and trust the saving power of their Savior. They'll fear a storm that they can't survive or live with a host of demons they can't overpower, but they won't trust in God, who's master over both. So we come to the the end of our story here, uh, which concludes with the man freed from the demons. And I want you to see the depth of this man's gratitude. I really do. And the joy for what Jesus did to him. The text says that he implores Jesus to go with him, okay? The, the, the Greek word is parakaleo. It reflects this deep, earnest desire. Um, Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 8.4 when he's describing the desire of the church in Macedonia. Remember the church in Macedonia who, who, who just wanted to pour out for Jesus, okay, out of their poverty? He, he's, 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 he's describing... Um, them, and he says they were, quote, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. This is this deep desire that comes from the realization of salvation, the deliverance from chaos. But Jesus, interestingly, he doesn't let him come. Rather, Jesus does something here that, that he didn't do in, in Jewish territory. You may, you may pick up on, you may have picked up on this. Uh, it, he commands the man to go out and testify to all about him. Okay, now previously, like in Mark 144 with the, with the, uh, with the cleansed leper, Jesus commands those he healed not to tell anyone about his, his healing. So, so what's different here? Why this change? It could be that Jesus is, is in Gentile territory, so news of his miracles would be less likely to generate these popular messianic ideas about him, which would have disrupted his ministry. Or it could be that he saw in this man someone quite unlike the disciples who perceived Jesus' true divine nature, person, and mission. This man could be trusted with the gospel and proclaim it. He does. At the end, that everyone was amazed. So I'm asking you, if, if you have been delivered from that chaos, are you proclaiming the power of Jesus? Because the world needs to hear from you. The world needs to hear from you. We see in these passages the demonstration of the proof of Jesus' power over all forces that come against us, whether supernatural or natural, whether around us or within us. We see his power is greater than any threats we face in our world, whether they're storms or tornadoes, hurricanes, droughts, floods. His power is greater than malevolent dictators and their malicious armies. His power is greater than any form human-made explosive, whether it's strapped to the back of a terrorist or launched from a silo. 
Jesus is more powerful. You see, he's more powerful than any demon and disease or corruption that can come within us. He's more powerful than your addictions. He's more powerful than negative thoughts. He's more powerful than depression. He's more powerful than the emotional, more powerful than the emotional scars that come with a legacy of abuse. He's more powerful than the pain inflicted by a pain, uh, an unfaithful spouse or a sick child or a corrupt boss. Jesus is more powerful. And he's more powerful than the demons that may be lurking within any of us. Here's the thing. The text today tells us the demons already know it. They know you already have victory in Christ. The question is, do you? I want to be clear here about what the power of Jesus means. I'm going to finish up with this. It doesn't necessarily mean that he'll spare you the pain and the anxiety, uh, uh, the anxiety or the illness or, or even death, right? As many of you are painfully aware, God does not always rescue us from our pain. His people get sick. His people get attacked. His people will suffer mental illness and depression. His people will lose their soulmates. They'll lose their children. We see it, sadly. His people die. It's not if, but when. But here is the truth. While Jesus may not spare us from going through the pain of suffering, he absolutely will deliver us from the tragedy of sin if we place our trust in him. He already has. Even death has lost its grip on those who are in Jesus. It can't. Victory is ours. What does it mean for us? It's a hard concept to grasp, so let me, let me just share personally a little bit. And I'll, Again, I'll just finish up with this. I've noticed this funny thing about preparing for sermons. And that is that many times God requires you to live a subject a little before you talk about it. In fact, I'm becoming convinced that this is the true source of the prosperity gospel. Okay? Like, I'm just going to preach about joy and riches. <laughs> now on. So the last couple of weeks have been a bit chaotic for our family, and I'm not going to go into details about it. Um, but it was one of those times when I found myself looking, if I was looking at myself from the outside, I'd be asking, man, how did you handle that? How did you get through that? Um, it was in a beautiful way, in a wonderful way, um, a great reminder for me as I thought about it. Because I had the gift of being able to lean into Jesus. And man, that is what I did. Because I didn't have any other choice. That's what I did. And I can't put into words the peace I felt. I can only say that it was absolutely not of me. I mean, I experienced what it means when he carries us, when he holds us, when he lifts us through. It wasn't free of tears. It wasn't free of pain. Jesus doesn't take those things away. But he does cry with you. He does hold you. And he reminds you this. I am. The I am of the Bible. The God of the universe. I am still here. And I am not going anywhere. You know, when I arrived home on 9-11, Amy met the, at the door with this supernatural hug. And then we stood there, I'm sure like many of you, in horror as we watched over and over as this dis demon, demonic kind of chaos unfolded on TV. Remember that? And at one point I, I, one point I looked up and I noticed something. 
It was an absolutely beautiful day outside. And I looked out through our, our bay window. You remember the day? It was beautiful, right? I mean, the sky was so blue. And I noticed this whole uh, kaleidoscope. I learned that somebody in the first service told me that a, a group of butterflies is called a kaleidoscope. So I had flock, and I knew that wasn't right. But anyway, I saw this group, this kaleidoscope, which is a beautiful word, of, of butterflies on this bush. And it was so, it was so beautiful, just like the picture. And they were just kind of fluttering in perfect order and harmony. Um, I realized something at that moment. I mean, my first instinct was like, how can they be so peaceful? Don't they see what's going on? They're butterflies. Of course they don't see it. But, but that was, that's irrational. And then, and then I, after I looked at it a little longer, I, I, I realized these butterflies were outside. They were free. And they were living in the presence and loving order of their creator. Chaos, on the other hand, was contained in a box. Oh, it was very real. I'm not, I will never make light of, 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 of the gravity of what happened on 9-11. But the chaos was still contained in this box. And God's order was still outside and over everything, over the chaos, above it. Jesus was still and is still on the throne. His order was and is still the greater power as evidenced by the order of creation. I, Jesus, through this most delicate, gentle, and beautiful of creatures, demonstrated the unmatched magnitude of his power. That's how he does it. It was amazing. The thing is, you have that power. But you've got to trust in him. If you don't trust in him, I pray today you do. You come to that realization. Because we all need that saving power. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you already have delivered us. Your power is greater, greater than all things. And Lord, you've made that power available to us. You love us. You care for us. You'll not, not let anything separate us from your love. Help us, Lord. Help us this day to know that power, to know that you are there, to know that your spirit resides within us. Lord, help us to testify to that spirit in this dark world. Lord, I pray that anybody who doesn't know that today, Lord, I pray that they would know it. Lord Jesus, we, we lift all of this up to you. For your name is precious and holy. You are God. Amen. Thank you all very much. I hope you have a wonderful Sunday, and you're free.